Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. When you hear those words, you can feel good knowing that. State Farm is there to help you feel supported with the coverage you need for your car, your home, and even boats, motorcycles, RVs, and other things that matter to you. Now, let me tell you, girl, I don't got a boat, a motorcycle, or an RV, but State Farm covers my home and my car. With a State Farm agent, you know someone is there to help protect your future by helping you choose the coverage you need. With so many coverage options, it feels good knowing you can find what fits for you. And you know what? Getting insurance can be so intimidating because you don't know exactly what you need. So having an agent that could help you with each step makes it so much easier. Girl, I feel you on that. So when things get complicated and you need ways to get help, State Farm gives you options there too. Maybe you like to handle things in person or on the phone with your local agent, or you prefer to do it on statefarm.com or on the award-winning app. State Farm lets you do things your way. I personally am the type of gal that likes to do things through an app. It just makes it more easier than going in person or hopping on a call. So I love that they have that option available. Girl, I like to use an app too. I'm not trying to pull up a person or or a call because I'm way too, I have too much social anxiety for that. I'm trying to do it on the app. So that's why I'm here with State Farm. And that is why, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey there, everyone. I'm Sarah Weldon, CEO of Trufinco, a finance company dedicated to helping both budding and established small businesses. I'm thrilled to be hosting Business Perfect Formula, a podcast designed to demystify business funding, real estate investing, and business credit. My goal is to simplify the complexities of alternative lending, showing you that navigating the financial landscape can be straightforward and stress-free. Business Perfect Formula is available wherever you listen to podcasts. It wasn't a breakthrough, but it didn't break down either. We inched forward. It could have been faster, could have gone further. But there had been a serious risk that we might go backwards. So to that extent, we should be grateful. The political atmosphere in their respective countries really doesn't permit much of a display of friendship, even between two people who are working for the same goals and who know each other very well. Nevertheless, they have overcome the active hostility in both countries and managed to say, we must protect climate from any other disagreement that the US and China is currently having. And as you know, there are plenty of those. I don't think coal is safe at all after Glasgow. These governments didn't say it out loud and and India did have this unhelpful intervention. But it may not be the end of the story that we go away with the idea that coal lives to fight another day. I don't think that's true. Hello, and welcome to the Global Goalscast, the podcast that shows how we can change the world. In this episode, the Climate Summit. It wasn't as bad as you think. That's your glass half-full <laughs> summary of the most important climate conversation since Paris, Edie? Well, maybe I should say it was better than it looked. Yeah, no, I got you. You're right. Something new is happening. We're used to politicians saying that they will address the climate and then go and do less than they promised. Exactly. But at this summit, the opposite may have finally happened. We have a situation where the words from government leaders may be trailing behind what is actually going on. Like that infamous last-minute language change to say that the world was only promising to face down coal, not to face it out, which is what must happen if we are to limit the temperature rise of the planet 
to just 1.5 degrees. Yeah, and in a minute, we'll hear from an expert who says those cautious words may well not reflect the reality. So we may actually be seeing the last gasp of coal, are you suggesting? Indeed, and we will have all of that and much more right after this message. This episode of Global Goalscast is brought to you by MasterCard. MasterCard is dedicated to building an inclusive world in which the digital economy works for everyone, everywhere. Climate change is a man-made problem and needs a female solution. From a consumer point of view, in my world, we know 85% of the day-to-day -day buying decisions are made by women. And so I think the collective power of women around the planet can be actually very influential in climate change. Thanks also to CBS News Digital and Universal Production Music. Welcome back. I'm Edie Lash. And I am Claudia Romo Edelman. Edie, welcome back from Glasgow. How was it? That is exactly what this episode is all about. Everyone was disappointed. And I have never heard so many different versions of the glass being half full. <laughs> there wasn't breakthrough, but at least there wasn't a breakdown. And that, for me, is a favorite. That was a good one. So to make sense of the summit, I sought out a woman who's an expert on both climate and on one of the pivotal countries on whether the world will achieve its goal of curbing carbon emissions. That will be China, I presume? I always say you are so smart, Claudia. Her name is Isabel Hilton, and when I caught up with her, she was still in Scotland, still sorting through the outcome of the Glasgow summit, COP26. As you know, it's a very lumpy beast. I have seen a lot of people say nothing happened at COP, and I think that isn't true. Almost everyone left disappointed, but that's very much in the nature of trying to get nearly 200 countries to move a very complicated and challenging agenda forward. Someone is going to be disappointed about something all the time. So everybody left unhappy. It wasn't a breakthrough, but it didn't break down either. We inched forward, it could have been faster, could have gone further, but there had been a serious risk that we might go backwards. So to that extent, we should be grateful. So my chief positive takeaway was a much greater sense of urgency, the naming of fossil fuels, all these things which you think, well, after 26 years, surely it's not such a big step forward. But it is because until very recently, even getting the basic science into the closing statements was very difficult. Even getting any kind of acknowledgement that fossil fuels were the problem, we hadn't managed to do that before. It is absurd, but the resistance is very strong. And if you like, the length of time that it's taken for us to get that far is really a tribute to the strength of the fossil fuel lobby and, and, the, and the fossil defended countries that managed to keep it off the menu. Hilton told me this new urgency produced other important results. The reassertion of the goal of 1.5 degrees. Now, this is important because it's not actually formally in the Paris Agreement. It's mentioned, but the Paris commitment is to keep the global average temperature below uh, rise below 2 degrees and to aim for 1.5. And 1.5 was very, very much resisted 
by China, for example, which regarded it when it kind of came onto the scene in Paris as an American plot. China has never really been happy about it. And so, again, tries to resist the advance of 1.5 as the global standard that we're all aiming for. And there was serious progress on that. That sense of urgency, that need to speed up the process, to aim higher, to move faster, all of that was very much there. And that has resulted in the pledge to come back within a year with updated national pledges. That would have been five years without this new sense of urgency. And there was a big recognition that this decade is the one that really counts. This decade up to 2030, long-term pledges are really useful and important. But if you don't set in place in the next decade the, the means by which you're going to achieve those long-term pledges, then it will be too late and we won't keep 1.5 alive. And for some people, this incremental progress is too slow to avert climate catastrophe. I asked Isabel about that and about Gideon Rackman's column in the Financial Times that the UN climate process was irredeemably broken. I don't really agree with that, but you do hear it and I understand the frustrations. My response is, what is your plan, as it were? If you're trying to get really important things like climate justice and equity, you know, this involves the whole world. You have to negotiate on a global basis and that, of course, makes it slow and complicated. But, you know, if we hadn't had this process, we would be much, much worse off. You know, when, when this began, we were heading on a business as usual scenario for five degrees, six degrees, absolutely unlivable planet. The UN process is not enough. It's not fast enough, but it is the only global forum where this conversation can happen and where you can at least try to keep a whole set of misaligned countries aligned around keeping global average temperature rises within bounds. And around this process, increasingly you see accumulating business coalitions and scientific coalitions and like-minded country coalitions. And you can see forming all manner of relationships which are not strictly part of the process, but are facilitated by the process. And that will in themselves drive further reductions. Now, again, without this global process, none of that would happen. Without the global process, we wouldn't have the science. We would not understand the difference between two degrees and 1.5. We would still be arguing about the anthropogenic nature of climate change. It's the science which this process has produced, which has got us this far. And so we really need to hang on to a sense of perspective here, despite the frustrations. One area that Isabel said had produced disappointment at Glasgow was the issue of payments from rich countries to poorer ones to support the transition to sustainable energy and for the damage done by climate warming and the cost to adapt. This is a highly contentious area and it's certainly not a huge success. But again, it did move forward at COP26. So there are two issues here. One is that in Copenhagen, there was a promise that the richer countries would pledge 100 billion a year to help the poorer countries make a, an energy transition, essentially. And over the years, as climate impacts have hit, the poorer countries have asked that adaptation be included in that finance. Now, 
there has been a lot of progress towards the 100 billion. We haven't reached that 100 billion a year. You know, we've had 70 billion, 80 billion. It's not that nothing has happened, but it hasn't reached the 100 billion. And that was a source of, of considerable resentment, justifiably, in the context, for example, of a global pandemic, when vaccines had been hoarded by rich countries and not shared amongst poor countries. There is a, a sense that, you know, the rich world is behaving extremely selfishly. It's not assisting the poor world to develop clean energy, and it's not assisting the vulnerable countries and the least developed countries to adapt to the impacts that they're already feeling. So that's one issue. Everybody also understands that 100 billion is not enough. It has a high symbolic value, but it's not enough. So what is going to make a big difference, if we can make it happen, is the trillions. It's the investment in building clean energy systems in countries that need energy, that need to develop, and that really can't go the high-emitting route because there isn't the carbon space. And in the end, if they continue to build coal-fired power stations, they'll either be stranded assets or they will just put the country's emitting profile through the roof. So they need assistance, they need support, and they need investment. And the difficulty is that poorer countries have tremendous barriers to investment. They're seen as high risk. Private capital tends not to want to go there. Public money goes, but it doesn't tend to leverage enough private capital to make the difference. So overcoming those barriers, and when, when poorer countries get investment, or loans, it tends to be at a much higher rate of interest because they're perceived as high risk. So there are structural barriers, and these were very much on the table in Glasgow. But we didn't really make a lot of progress. There was also a call for a loss and damage fund to be set up, and private philanthropy had offered to contribute to that mechanism if it were set up, and it wasn't set up, and that was opposition from the EU or the US to that proposition. So there are is still an, a great deal of unmet need in terms of financial transfer. Some mechanisms in order to continue the conversation or the dialogue or the process have been established. And I think in a year's time, when we reconvene in Egypt, there will be very loud demands for evidence of progress on that. So if we come to the thorny issue of the U.S. and China, and what's interesting is that while the U.S. and China are divided on many things, perhaps the most important thing for humanity is their divide on climate and how they resolve that debate over the rich world's historical responsibility for carbon emissions and China's role today is the largest emitter. I mean, in fact, I think that China is even historically near the top of the list of all time emitters. So if we talk about the issue particularly around coal, China did have a hand in the last minute changes in the Glasgow Agreement, and instead of phasing out coal, we're only phasing down. So I wonder what you make of that. Coal has been quite contentious all year in China, because after uh, Xi Jinping's announcement at the UN, at the General Assembly that China would no longer finance new coal overseas. Of course, the attention focused on China. And because Xi Jinping had, had pledged the previous UN General Assembly to reach net zero by 2060, again, the expectation was that China's 14 five-year plan, which was about to be released, in, that was in March this year, would contain language 
on phasing out coal, and it didn't. And in fact, we had sort of thought coal had peaked around 2017, 2018, and then it began to rise again, and new permissions have been given for new coal-fired power stations in China. And instead of talking about climate, in the speeches around the release of the 14th five-year plan, the talk was very much about energy security. So this was a change in tone, which I and many other people who look at China closely interpreted as anxieties brought about by the geostrategic tensions in the region, because China imports almost all its energy except for coal. And obviously renewables and nuclear, which are important and growing, but they nowhere near measure up to the volume of the primary energy that's produced by coal. So if you have tensions in the region, if, for example, shipments of oil or gas, LNG, might be interrupted, then you fall back on what you have, and that's coal. And that, I think, you know, was very much reflected in what China brought to the COP. Essentially, what it brought was a, a series of statements with which we were fairly familiar, a measurement of past achievements, and, uh, and sort of sectoral plans based on the 14th five-year plan. And China was basically saying, you know, we don't promise what we can't achieve. This is how we are going to do it. Other countries make promises without any clear pathway to how they're going to achieve them. And China liked to play up the contrast between, if you like, the steadiness of China's commitment to climate action with the, the lottery of the United States elections, where you might get a president elected or you might get a you know, shift in the midterms even closer, which will make uh, the U.S.'s current climate position very difficult to execute. And that is a fair point. Uh, these are different political systems. And China can at least claim, if we don't attribute many other virtues to China's political system, that policy is fairly steady and committed. Now, what was a surprise was the US-China announcement at COP that they had reached an, an agreement on climate. And it was a bit of an echo of an agreement which Xi Jinping and, and Barack Obama had reached before Paris when they had shaken hands and said, we will work together towards Paris. And they both ratified Paris very quickly afterwards. And that was a very, very positive diplomatic initiative. And this one too, in Glasgow, it doesn't actually produce uh, savings in carbon, but it did have a kind of chemical effect, if you like, on the atmosphere of the COP. Because when you've got the world's two biggest emitters engaged in trench warfare, verbal trench warfare, fortunately, it does suck the air out of everything else. You know, that's what people look at and talk about. And you need all the focus and energy that you can muster to move this process forward at all. So it was a very positive thing. A couple of things I would say about it. One, it was noted that they couldn't actually have a joint event. So Xie Jinhua appeared and made the announcement and answered questions. And then separately, John Kerry appeared, made his announcement and answered questions. And there is no photograph of these two men shaking hands that is more recent than about 2016. And what that tells you is that the political atmosphere in their respective countries really doesn't permit much of a display of friendship, even between two people who are working for the same goals and who know each other very well. 
nevertheless, they have overcome the active hostility in both countries and managed to say, we must protect climate from any other disagreement that the US and China is currently having. And as you know, there are plenty of those. That was really important. And I think we should pay tribute both to Kerry and to Xie Jiehua, who are veterans of the climate process, each of whom was appointed by their respective president and enjoys a high degree of trust. But each of those presidents has things to deal with back home and a nationalist mood which does not favor cooperation with the other. So that is a real game. It's a victory. And they have set up a working group which will work on building cooperation, including importantly on methane, which China, you know, has a lot, <laughs> a lot of coal bed methane, for example, a lot of rice paddy methane. But the coal bed methane is fixable. And the oil business, China, you know, extracts a lot of oil around the world. If China's oil companies also worked on their methane emissions, that would be a big help. So practical, concrete things will, we hope, come out of this working group and take us beyond the symbolic but significant joint declaration. So that's interesting. Those are some really important practical ways that the two countries can work together because I was wondering how it's possible to separate climate from the myriad of other disagreements that the US and China find themselves entangled in. But do you think that the, the working group is the main thing to look at in the future? Is there anything else to look at? I think the working group will be the test of whether this does deliver and, the, you know, there is a pledge to build cooperation in science and technology. And, and before Donald Trump was elected, there was a very rich ecosystem of US-China cooperation on climate. And that included province to state level discussions, city to city level discussions, as well as a whole series of expert meetings and discussions on energy and so on. And there was a general sharing of purpose across all of those meetings. Now, I don't suppose we'll get back to that very active level, but some of it can be rebuilt. And, you know, you, you could imagine, for example, we were talking about the difficulty of poorer developing countries accessing finance. Now, China, when Xi Jinping announced that no new coal would be financed outside China, he also added that China would support developing countries to build clean energy systems. The United States also talks about promoting investment in clean energy systems in the United States. There are areas for collaboration that you can see beyond the discussion of what happens within these respective carbon superpowers. You know, they could collectively make a real contribution to the developing world in avoiding the high carbon route and building a clean form of development, which would be a huge benefit, including the developed world. We will hear more from Isabel Hilton in a moment. But first, we have this conversation with Anne Cairns from our sponsor MasterCard and Jude Kelly from the Women of the World Foundation. I asked you to describe the role women needed to play in climate action and why gender equity is so important in solving the climate emergency. Mary Robinson, now one of the elders, ex-president of Ireland, said climate change is a man-made problem and needs a female solution. Well, she actually specifically says a feminist solution. And I think the role of women 
in this is to do two things. First of all, to bring testimony from all over the world about the impact of climate change on communities which largely are being sorted and sustained by women because most of the coastal communities where they've been ravaged, the men are having to flee to the city to find work. They may well not come back, they may well not send any money. And the women are really having to step into those leadership roles. So I think it's about women having the confidence to tune into their own thinking and not feel as if this is a touchy-feely bit that might be added on as a decorative extra, but actually has to be central to the way that the countries now think. It's going to take a lot of doing that, though, because obviously women still don't hold most of the levers of power. But once we get critical mass, that can change. It's interesting hooking up to what Jude's saying about levers of power because if we think about it from a consumer point of view, in my world we know 85% of the day-to-day -day buying decisions are made by women. And there's a lot of consumer research showing that women are asking questions about where did mm -hmm. this product come from? Is it actually sustainable? What does its carbon footprint look like? And so I think the collective power of women around the planet can be actually very influential in climate change. Going to the financial side, 40% of the world's wealth is now moved into the hands of women. And that's because laws have changed about inheritance in mm -hmm. different countries. And women investors have shown that they change their financial advisors quite quickly after inheriting and uh, they're looking at sustainable investments more, yeah. impact investment. And so I think women can make decisions which affect climate change. Welcome back. It was great to hear again from Anne Cairns, our sponsor at MasterCard. And Edie, Jude Kelly is just spot on, right? Your conversation with Isabel Hilton really took us deep inside the political dynamics at Glasgow. And she really thinks deeply about how we can get to the solutions. Given what you were saying about the uncertainty in the United States and this question of, I mean, if we put it back on the table of Trump getting reelected, getting yet more chaos, given that uncertainty, as well as, in the other hand, the global failure to act multilaterally around COVID, I wonder if just if you step back from this whole moment in time, is it a moment when multilateralism just isn't working and actually we're moving towards a place where there's a kind of plentitude of ways to react and work together? You mentioned the cities in China who are working you know, with cities across the world. In fact, I think there's now 149 cities that have signed the Paris Accords and that are bringing down emissions rapidly and much more rapidly than the national governments have dictated will happen. Yeah. So is that a better way to look at what's going to be happening in the future? Or is there still some hope for this multilateral approach? I don't think it's an either or, because uh, cities that, that are more ambitious help countries to bring down their emissions. And I go back to the, the idea that infuriating, cumbersome, slow as it is, the multilateral process facilitates other things. And many of these other collaborations just wouldn't be happening without the multilateral process. So it's not enough, absolutely not enough, but it's not alone either. Companies now are having to account for themselves. You know, 10 years ago, almost no 
company w- was was counting its its carbon emissions. Now they do. They have to account to their investors for their emissions. They have to account to their stakeholders for emissions. So all of this happens, if you like, in the penumbra of the multilateral process. So it's not an either or, and 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 indeed is it sufficient? But it's not a reason not to do it because we need everything at this point, including the multilateral. A major obstacle to climate action is nationalist politics in both the US and China. So we asked Isabel whether she saw a path forward in which each country could manage its internal politics and still make progress on climate. Well, I think we've begun to see it. There was a point this year when it seemed as though US-China relations would uh, just get in the way of everything, but they didn't. I'm hoping we've sort of hit bottom up and are beginning to kind of come back up. And the Xi-Biden virtual summit, which we're just getting the readout from, it wasn't a breakthrough, but it didn't break down either. And if you think back to the Cold War, when it, it was a different situation because of global supply chains and all of that. and and. The relative economic power of China is very different from the USSR. But it was a highly dangerous confrontation with live wars going on, proxy wars, not direct confrontation, but there was a, there was a lot happening. And yet we kind of managed to manage it, certainly in terms of the strategic stuff. You know, we did not have a nuclear war with the Soviet Union. And, and I think that we've got to the point with China where just looking over the edge became pretty alarming. And what the readout from this virtual summit is essentially saying is that it is their responsibility for the sake of the rest of the world to manage their differences. And now that's very different language from even three months ago. It's very different language from that that rather painful meeting in Alaska. So, So that is progress. This will not solve the problems, but it might stop them getting worse. And it, it might stop one of the great difficulties in when you have confrontation like this is that you can have accidents, you know, and you can have an accident over Taiwan, over the South China Sea. You know, you can have all sorts of accidents. And if you don't have mechanisms to deal with the unexpected, then you are really at risk in a highly volatile atmosphere such as we have on both sides in this, you know. For each side, the other is the major enemy in nationalist circles. And that is narrowing the room for maneuver that each president has. And that includes Xi Jinping. You know, Xi Jinping may have helped to create this nationalism, but he's also constrained by it. And, and Joe Biden didn't create it, but he's also constrained by it. So you have to keep the expectations of what could be achieved by these conversations realistic. And, you know, I would certainly for the time being settle for it not getting worse and for them to find ways within this straitjacket of mutual confrontation to find ways of being constructive over climate, which both sides explicitly recognized as an existential threat. So it sets up a diplomatic framework within which things can happen. They won't be miracles, but they will be I hope, constructive. One thing I love about Isabel Hilton is that she combines a journalistic ability to describe a situation while combining it with an advocate ability to really call it out. 
You talked about the jarring closing moments of Glasgow, when India in front of the world pushed that wording change to face down rather than to face out coal. I think the whole fragility of the process was thrown into relief when India, in the closing plenary, which, you know, in which everybody essentially thought the deal was done, and India in this public forum proposed a change of wording. And we saw these, this agonizing scurrying around with everybody, you know, hastily consulting. So it was Alex Sharma, John Kerry, Xi Jinping. Everybody was consulting everybody. And the change of wording was allowed. And this, this made people very angry. It made, it made smaller countries that had wanted changes in the negotiating rooms who'd been told that, no, it's, it's really too late to change anything. It made them very angry. And it made it made people angry over, you know, this resistance, this just this one word about coal should put the whole thing in jeopardy. I think it's worth remembering, however, that India wasn't alone here. China obviously was also involved. But the United States hasn't signed up to get rid of coal formally either. And if you look at the plans, this doesn't mean that coal is safe after after Glasgow. I don't think coal is safe at all after Glasgow. Because if you look at India's solar mission and its renewables ambitions by 2030, the thing that it put on the table in Glasgow, then coal in India doesn't have a good future. They may not be saying explicitly, we are going to get rid of coal. But if they do do the plans, if they do their, their climate plan, that will be the effect. And it's rather similar in China or indeed in the United States. You know, if Biden's 2035 plan really happens, you know, coal has no future in the United States either. So these governments didn't say it out loud and, and India did have this unhelpful intervention. But it may not be the end of the story that we go away with the idea that coal lives to fight another day. I don't think that's true. Beyond just coal, Isabel finds more reason for hope out of Glasgow. The national plans, if executed, are more ambitious than they are giving the impression in the public statements, yes. And that may just be their way of getting around the political difficulty of saying we are going to close down this big, important sector. Let's hope that's what they're playing at. Wow, Edie, I officially have FOMO. You were in Glasgow. <laughs> Tell me more about it. What's your analysis? What's the situation? So Isabel definitely comes down on the more positive side of things. I spoke to a lot of other people who weren't quite as positive. So I spoke to David Miliband, who we've had on the podcast before. He said that the ambitions as they are now, they're too low. We aren't going to get to 1.5 degrees with the implementations as they are now. There's too weak. Despite that, of course, there have been great steps forward on methane, on forestry, and on coal, as we've been discussing now. So he also thought that there would continue to be a polarization around climate issues between those who feel an enormous sense of responsibility around the agenda and those who want to enjoy the present at the expense of the future. 
So that was one thought. The other thing that he mentioned was that the 20 most climate-stressed countries in the world all have armed conflict. Climate is now and will continue to be a destabilizer. I spoke to Mayor Islam, who's the mayor of Dhaka North. He has 1,500 migrants coming into his city every day. Wow. Let's hear what challenges that brings. Bangladesh is very much affected of the climate change. And as you know that our sea level is going up and up. So ultimately the coastal areas, they are very much affected. They've lost their houses, their land. Of course, it's a challenges for their accommodation, challenges for their public health, challenges for their education. If you can give the training, develop the skill development, so they can earn their money. But when they're coming in the city, they're staying in the slum areas. So this is where the Sustainable Development Goals all come together, right? We know that they're all connected. We know that climate is connected to all of the other goals and progress on climate would affect progress elsewhere. David Miliband says that if we were to make real progress on climate, actually we would start to solve the inequality problem. I'm so glad that Glasgow was not the disaster that I was predicting it could be because all factors were there just to really just like disintegrate the progress that we have made to date in the commitment of countries and the commitment of companies. From my side, Edie, when you were in Glasgow, I was just like hearing more and more people getting a renewed energy to do more advocacy for climate change, more people getting together and actually advocating again. So I, if at all, I think that there was a renewed energy from activists and influencers and young people to actually take the planet's agenda again. But in reality, I also hear, particularly now that I'm not working on the Sustainable Development Goals at the United Nations, but looking at minorities like the Latino community, how complicated that change is and to some degree how unfair it is to expect that a country like El Salvador is going to actually be able to phase out from coal. It's so expensive. There's no mm. way that that economy can really take on that amazing investment and trying to actually serve to their people. So unless there is an investment from other countries, not only to agree on goals, but also to support those that are actually facing the most stressed climate change situations, it's very unlikely to expect mm. the change to happen. And again, you know, like I also try to understand as well the resentment of other countries like India or China or emerging economies saying like, wait, are we going to be measured on the same level, even if you industrialized countries have been actually polluting the, the planet 100 years more and therefore were able to industrialize and get richer by 100 years and now we have to be actually doing the same? So that is exactly what I wanted to talk about, Claudia, because the other issue is that issue around funding. And the question has moved from how many billions need to be transferred from the rich world to the poor to how many trillions need to be transferred. And it's that whole issue around the global north, the rich world, whatever you want to call it, built our pathway on fossil fuels. We've caused most of the damage. Most of the damage is being felt in the poorer countries. 
And in fact, you may not think of Bermuda as one of the poorer countries, but they also talked to me about the need for funding and about the need to get funding in order to turn themselves into what they call a blue economy. So have a listen to what the deputy premier told me. The conversation has been about us settling territories and the fact that we are the fifth largest United States in the world and part of that. And the importance that we get support to protect our environment from the issues of climate change and mitigate those impacts. And how with that great responsibility of being part of the fifth largest United States, we need support with mitigation, adaptation and resilience. That was the Honorable Walter Roban talking about how he has a vision to turn Bermuda into a real blue economy based on renewable energy, huge support for biodiversity, sustainable fishing, which is an admirable goal. There is still a need for an enormous amount of money to move from the rich to the poor part of the world in order to help countries like that like Bermuda, like El Salvador, do just that. The other thing that I just wanted to mention, Claudia, was my conversation with President Mary Robinson. She's now one of the elders, and the elders came out after COP26 with a very strong statement saying that they deplored the lack of real leadership at COP26, that there was a failure to have an emergency, a crisis mindset and that a lot still needed to be done. She was very concerned about indigenous people, the impact on them, the impact on women, which of course Jude and Anne spoke about in our sponsor section. And she talks about the fact that the most vulnerable, the most marginalized are in the poor. And I think for her and for many people like her, it is that issue of money that you mentioned there. Thank you so much, Edie, for having gone to Glasgow and reporting from there. And I am officially again on FOMO mode. (laughs) You have to come next time. Maybe we can go to Egypt together. And thank you so very much for Hub Culture, for helping actually in setting this up, for allowing hosting Edie and for getting the infrastructure at Glasgow so that Global Goalscast can be present there. Thank you, Hub Culture. We love you. Absolutely. And thank you also to C40 for having me come and MC the conference and for setting up the interviews with some of the mayors that we heard from today. This is the moment we say goodbye to you and to all our audience. Please like, subscribe, listen, suggest to your friends, rate us. This is a podcast that is making a difference, informing you, but also inviting you to be a champion for the planet. Thank you so very much. Sayonara. See you later. All right. See you next time. Bye. Global Goalscast was hosted by Edie Lush and Claudia Romo Edelman. We are editorial gurued by Mike Oreskes. Editing and sound production by Simon James. Our operations director is Michelle Kuprider. Music in this episode was courtesy of Universal Production Music one of the world's leading production music companies, creating and licensing music for film, television, advertising, broadcast, and other media, including podcasts. Original music by Neil Hale, Angelica Garcia, Simon James, 
Katie Crone, and Andrew Phillips. This episode of Global Goalscast is brought to you by MasterCard. MasterCard is dedicated to building an inclusive world in which the digital economy works for everyone, everywhere. Thanks also to CBS News Digital. The struggle is real, and we know that firsthand being daughters of hardworking immigrants. That's why on La Lucha is Real podcast, hablamos un poquito de todo. Somos Angel and Edith, long-term best friends who have authentic conversations, giving us space to be vulnerable without judgment because La Lucha is real. We want all of our amigos who listen to us to feel a part of the conversation and feel empowered to become a better version of themselves. A veces bromeando y a veces llorando, pero siempre mejorando. La Lucha is Real podcast is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey there, everyone. I'm Sarah Weldon, CEO of Trufinco, a finance company dedicated to helping both budding and established small businesses. I'm thrilled to be hosting Business Perfect Formula, a podcast designed to demystify business funding, real estate investing, and business credit. My goal is to simplify the complexities of alternative lending, showing you that navigating the financial landscape can be straightforward and stress-free. Business Perfect Formula is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.